0: The seventh commandment, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Every parent dreads the responsibility of the day when they have to have the talk, the talk, the dreaded talk. There was a dad, he had two kids, two kids, just two, just two kids. This father went on a trip with his son. And for the dad, the purpose of the trip was, and the time in the car was for he and his son to get some extended time to have the talk, the birds and the bees discussion. And so, uh, this is what actually what I listened to as part of this. But they, so these, this father and the son they listened together to James Dobson's audiotapes on on sex and anatomy and how sex works, and where children come from. And as they listened to this series of talks, the father would glance over from time to time at his son, and his son was simply staring out the window aimlessly. And, well, when they got through all the lessons and the father looked at his son, he said, Well, son, what do you think about all that? The son looked over at the father and said, That's the most disgusting thing I have ever heard of. He said, you and mom didn't do that, did you? And the dad said, well, yes, yes, we have children, so yes, we did do that. And the son replied, well, at least you only had to do it twice. (laughs) All right, trying to break the tension this morning. This morning, folks, your dad, your father wants to have a talk with you. He wants to have the talk. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, I already said it. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30, if you have a Bible, you can read that. It should also be on the screen as well. Here's, Here's God's word. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This ends the reading of God's holy and wondrous words. Praise be to the Lord. I want to make things very, very, very simple and clear at the beginning this morning because it will get more convoluted later. So let me say two things on the front end. Very simply, this commandment, the seventh commandment, gives us the parameters for sex. And it is quite clear. You got it? Here's what it is. Any sex outside of God's original design, which is sex between a man and a woman united in marriage for life, is off-limits. Got it? It's actually quite simple. It's quite clear that there are parameters and that parameter goes around marriage. It's the only place for this activity to occur. In the New Testament, it actually goes deeper in regards to how we violate this. The word for any sex outside of a marriage between, marriage between a man and a woman is the word porneia, not adultery. It's the word porneia, the Greek word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, as we just read here, that porneia even included fantasizing, of having thoughts about someone to whom you are not married. It goes beyond simply the physical acts and goes to the very heart and mind of the matter. So let me make sure we have got this. Let me make sure we've got it clear, in case I wasn't clear just a minute ago. This means no sex outside of marriage. None. You might say, but we're engaged. Well, let me ask you this question. Is engaged different from marriage? Yes. Therefore, no sex during engagement. You've signed the contract on the house, but you haven't closed on it yet, so you can't move your stuff in. That's what that means. If you're desperate that way, in such a way that way, then I will marry you today. I'm licensed to do so. We can make sure it happens. What about self-stimulation? Is it sexual? Yes, then that is pornea. Someone says to me, what if, what if we don't go all the way, but do we do a lot of things that are short of actual sex? Well, is the, are those acts sexual? Yes, then that is pornea. I'm not sure why I'm getting that feedback. What about friends with benefits? Well, now you're just asking stupid questions. What about homosexual marriage? Well, again, I would say that the, the norm and the, the pattern that we see in scriptures, God designed for sex, is that between a man and a woman united in marriage, and therefore, homosexuality is clearly considered in the Old Testament to be porneia, to be a violation of the marriage bed and God's design for marriage, and Jesus affirms that. But it also, as much as we need to make those things clear, those things clear. It must also be clear that God's grace is for the sexually immoral. In the Gospel of John, there's a story about a woman who is caught in adultery and she is guilty of it. And the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus, and they ask, what should we do with her? You mean, you know, the Old Testament uh, penalty for adultery was death. And Jesus paused, and he began to scribble on the ground and write in the sand. And many people have tried to, to guess what Jesus writes in the sand and make a big deal about the fact that Jesus bends down. But that's not, what's, that's not what's the big deal here. The big deal is that he's about, he's pausing to let his words have their full effect, to give a moment of silence. And then he says this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Then Jesus bent down again and began to scribble in the sand. And all you could hear is the sound of rocks hitting the ground, one by one. And one by one, the accusers all walk away and to all that's left is Jesus. And Jesus stands up and looks this woman in the eye and says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Well, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Listen, we we walk through that Those steps of what is sexual sin. Pornography is sexual sin. Your fantasies are sexual sins. Your unfaithfulness to your spouse is sexual sin. These things are wrong. We are sexually immoral people. And therefore, we, like this woman in John 8, need to hear Jesus say to us and to say about our pernea that he says, I am the only person in the room who can condemn you for this. And I do not. And it is out of that forgiveness. That forgiveness and that grace comes first. Remember that. That's the same with the whole pattern of the Ten Commandments. God removes Israel from slavery first, then gives them the law, gives them the joy and the freedom of living into God's laws. And so, out of the forgiveness, He now calls us to live in freedom. And so, it's the means. We're going to look at the means of going and sinning no more this morning. And so, let's look at the Seventh Commandment together. There's your introduction, some things we need to make very clear. But now, let's dive in a little more deeply. God has put a fence. He's put a fence around sex, and he has said it is only for marriage. But why does God put a fence around marriage? Why does God put a fence around sex? Well, why do you put fences up around anything? To protect the things that are most valuable to you. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. God, God's protection of marital sex. And sex is protected and valuable for three reasons I want to look at this morning to begin. First is this, because sex is a marital parable. Because sex is a marital parable. A parable is a story or a picture to which it points to something deeper. The sex between a man and a woman in marriage is a parable and is intended to speak about our relationship between God and his people. That you know this: that God has designed you to live an intimate connection with him, and in fact, He's actually given us sex to communicate the height, the height of which that, com- that intimacy is. It is this kind of experience. This kind of intimacy, this kind of nakedness, this kind of being known and loved that we're to experience with God. God's relationship, the way he describes his relationship with his people throughout the nitty-gritty of the Old Testament is as a marriage. In fact, God says it in Isaiah 62 that we are his bride and he is our husband. And whenever God's people would go astray, how would God declare and define that that estrangement? He would say it is adultery, that you have pursued other gods, that you have gone after other lovers. And this pattern continues into the New Testament. And the classic passage on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, God, Paul says this, that the two will become one flesh. And he says, this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church, about Christ and his bride. The coming together of a man and a woman sexually is the incarnation or a tangible representation of their union relationally. And their union relationally is a visible picture of the spiritual relationship between Christ and his church. And therefore, what this means is this. In this picture... Of sex and marriage needs to be protected because when sex and marriage are destroyed, when the intimacy that is occurring there is cheapened, then we cheapen a picture that is supposed to tell us about the beauty of what we are to experience with God Himself. And Christians have bought into this, have we have bought into the messiness of this picture, the destruction of this picture, so much so that we don't even think correctly. Here's the implications of this. If we if we muddle and muddy sex and marriage up, if we destroy this picture, then we actually lose something about our understanding of God. I was at a youth camp a number of years ago when I was a youth pastor, and a pastor named Joe Novenson was preaching. And Joe could be described as uh, only as simply as one of the most humble, gentle communicators. But he said that, you want me to get rid of this? You can move on. Okay. And he said that set that sex is a picture, is a picture of the intimacy of the members of the Trinity. That they are in perpetual, eternal, intimate relationship with one another. This is what, That sex is actually a symbol of this relationship that goes on amongst the three members of the Godhead. And I had a parent, a chaperone, who was on the trip with us, who was appalled by this notion. She was angry after this youth talk and made it very clear both to me and to the students in our room. And she said that the beauty of a Trinitarian God should never have anything to do with the nastiness of sex. Huh. We have destroyed the picture and when you destroy the picture, you lose something about the artist. This was a result of a low view of sex- in sexuality. The parable of sex could no longer speak to something more deep and more profound. So we have to protect it. Second, sex is protected and valuable because sex is for marital pleasure. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this very shocking thing, right? But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we read that, and because of our great guilt, we look at that often what we think that that means is this. Is that God doesn't want us to have any kind of sexual desire whatsoever. To find somebody sexually attractive or physically attractive is a terrible thing and you're going straight to hell. So just shut your eyes and don't look. Don't see anything, don't acknowledge anything that happens in your stomach, don't acknowledge anybody's attractiveness. We believe that committing to Jesus will be indeed a straitjacket to our freedom and will actually reduce our happiness. That's what we believe that this, that verse is trying to tell us. And the church has perpetuated this myth, and you heard it from my parental chaperone from youth camp. Billy Collins, who was a former U.S. Poet Laureate, says this, I think it's classic because it fits the picture, the description many of you probably have from your church growing up. But he said this, when he was growing up in church, all he heard was that sex is dirty and ugly, so be sure to save it for the one you love. <laughs> 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 the notion that sex is good is not a sound that the church has very clearly made. In fact, if you were to ask people in the culture about what the church believes about sex, they would say that the church says one thing about sex, No. No touchy, that that's what we would say about sex. In the early church, this has gone on for decades, in fact, centuries. In the early church, they were heavily impacted by Greek thought instead of biblical teaching, and so they viewed the body and things of the body as bad. For example, the great early teacher Ambrose said that married couples should be ashamed of their sexuality. Tertullian said that if it actually required sex to perpetuate the human race, (laughs) then extinction was preferable. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know why that tickled me so much. Uh, (laughs) Many priests counseled through the years and the centuries, counseled abstinence, and in fact sex was prohibited on all the holy days of the Roman Catholic Church, which you think that's not that big of a deal, except there are 183 of them. The view of the Bible, though, is, is very much against this. The view of the Bible is that sex is God's provision for, to us, and for this reason, for our pleasure. And it doesn't necessarily have to be more than that. After all, sex was his idea. You, you do understand that, right? It wasn't like Adam and Eve were running around naked in the garden and suddenly discovered something about each other, and God goes, wait a second! What? I didn't, What? And so, and so we must remember that this is gone on. God has always loved this in his scriptures. You have to remember how the scriptures even begin. It begins with God brings Eve to Adam. And Adam, what does he do? He bursts in the song into a love poem. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh." It's either a love poem or it's a song. We're not quite sure. But don't forget here, he's singing a song and they're naked. Here's how the Bible starts, in other words. A naked man is singing to a naked woman. And there we go on from there. That's just the start. The Bible is unashamedly erotic, touting sex as procreational, relational, and recreational bliss. If you would just go read Proverbs of Song and Solomon, you would blush. Song and Solomon will make the most crass, locker-room bully, and the most vile late-night comedian blush with its descriptions of sexual love and arousal. In fact, your English translators won't even translate Song and Solomon correctly because they're so embarrassed by it. An honest reading of the Bible should strip us of all squeamishness and prudish ideas of sexuality. And those who know the Bible best have always held this. You know, perhaps those who knew the Bible best were a people called the Puritans. And yet, when people talk about prudish views of sex, what do they call them? Puritanical views. But the Puritans were so wildly committed to the Bible and therefore their teaching on sex was so explicit that for much of the history of American, American literature, the Puritan writings were not allowed into American journals, periodicals, magazines, and newspapers because to promote their statements and views about sex would bring vile reactions from the general populace. For example, the Yale Review would not publish Puritan sermons as late as the 1950s because their sermons were so explicit in matters of sexuality. The Puritans believed in the Bible so much that they took the Bible at its word that sex is for our good, so we should thank God for the gift of sex. It is for your pleasure, and therefore it ought to be protected and valued. Third, sex is protected and valued because sex is for marital intimacy. Let me ask this question. What are we after with sex? It can't just be physical release. And the proof of that is that because it it can't be just physical release, especially when you're by yourself, is because it is utterly and completely not satisfying ultimately. It is a great and momentary rush that leaves you longing for something more. So, what are you after? There's something more we're after. It has been observed that humans are the only animals that make love face-to-face. So what are we after? What you're after is you're after connection. We are after connection. We're after being naked and being vulnerable and being embraced face-to-face. There is a word for that. You know what it's called? It's called intimacy. Intimacy. You could define intimacy almost in this way. It's complete openness based on full acceptance and lifelong faithfulness. And you have to have all three of those to have intimacy exist. Openness, acceptance, and faithfulness. This is why people prefer pornography, because we highly doubt we can get all three of those. And it allows us to have the rushes that we desire without having to be open, without having to be accepting, without having to be faithful or without having to risk someone believing that we are unacceptable. We would think that if you really knew you, me, you would not accept me and even if you did, would you actually stick around? So true intimacy is a terrifying thing for us but intimacy is what the pornographer and the adulterer and you and me is what we all really want. It's actually what we're after. We are a and by the way, this speaks highly to our culture and how lonely we are. We are the most sex saturated, hypersexual culture the world has ever known. And this is a gauge of our loneliness because what it shows is that we are starving for connection and for intimacy, and we don't know where to find it. We don't have it. We come from fatherless and motherless homes. We don't have relationships face to face. We don't know how to come to conversations. Everything has been digitalized and therefore we turn more and more to sex in the hopes that it will quench the thirst for intimacy but all we're finding is that it is salt water to our souls. And so what we see here is that sex is the most powerful tool for connection that God has given us, it is. It is the most powerful tool for connection, for connecting you to another person. And Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. It says this, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as is written, two will become one flesh. Now, real quick, don't get tripped up by the prostitution thing. That was just the, the common sexual outlet of the day. But what I want to point out to you is that word joined. The word joined is a rich Greek word that means to glue or bond, to bind indissolubly. We see this in other places in the Greek language. For example, Plato uses it in one of his writings, and when he uses this word for joined, it actually just described to gluing a handle to pottery that has come apart. The Bible is saying that this is what sex does, even casual sex. This is the design of sex, It doesn't matter what the participants intend, that sex is designed by God to be like ceramic cement, like soul-body super glue that joins two people together in an intimate embrace of connection and connectivity. Sex is designed by God to be a bonding act, a sealing apparatus. By God's own intention, it is about more than procreation and about more than pleasure. It is about forming a unit out of two into one. And guess what? It achieves what it's after. It achieves what it's after. It works. And all you have to do is look at the devastation of those who have lived outside of, of marriage and, yet, and have had sex with somebody else and the devastation they have when they're pulled apart. If you're not married, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, and you're having sex outside of marriage, let me say this to you. You're engaging in a life-uniting act without a life-uniting commitment. And when you part, it will feel like part of you is being ripped apart, because it is because it is when you break this is why breaking up can be so devastating because the glue actually worked. the sex worked it bound you together but when you grow broke up it felt like your soul was being ripped apart i think the best illustration of this perhaps from literature is from the from uh harry potter series when voldemort how what the great genius of voldemort is what does he do As he's able, he separates his soul and puts it into other bodies. But as as he does that, he becomes less and less human himself. And this is what we do sexually. We're literally ripping apart our souls. You say, well, my goodness, I've had many sexual partners and it doesn't affect me. Well, exactly. You see, the glue is designed to bond you to one person, one person in marriage. But when the glue is applied to many people, like all glue, it loses its stickiness. It loses its adhesive properties. Do you begin to see why there is a parameter around sex? The fence for sex is marriage and marriage only because of the power of it. Sex is the binding and unifying of two people to a deep and intimate connection. And so the Bible says you must not act out something physically that you have not committed to emotionally and relationally and financially and legally together in another marriage. Here's what you're saying when you're saying, I want sex outside of marriage, but I don't want marriage. Saying, I want your body, but I don't want you. I want to give you my body, but I don't want you to have me. My emotional parts of me, the financial part of my world, the legal part of my world, the relational part of my world. Sex was not designed to be separated from all the other ingredients of a whole life connection. Let me illustrate it this way. This is a pretty pedantic one, so we should get it, right? Sex without the emotional, financial, legal, lifelong commitment to marriage is like eating a can of icing, but also having on the table in front of you a stick of butter, a bag of flour, and cracked eggs. And someone asks you, what are you doing? You respond, I'm eating cake. I'm sampling it. I'm trying it out. So they ask you, how does it taste? You say, not what I expected it to taste like. Why? (laughs) Because you've separated it out. You separated it out. You see, the ingredients were meant to be put together in a whole life relationship. Now do you see the logic of putting up fences around sex? It is to protect sex and to protect you from the destruction of misusing sex. This is why God puts a fence around it, because God loves marriage, and he loves you to have connective, deep experiences in relationship with your spouse, a relationship of intimacy. If we try and shortcut God's creative design for our sexuality, we harm both ourselves and, And other people. Therefore, God's law is an expression of his kindness to us here, even in all the ways that we buck against it. You break against, you break God's law and you will break your life. You will break your life. So, that's God's view. That's why sex, there is these fences. This is why it is so highly protected by God because it is so valuable and it is so precious to him and to us. So, how do we join him in this? How can you guard yourself from this? How can we live free from sexual sin? How can we participate with God in the protection of this great gift in our lives? That's the second part of what we want to look at this morning. How do you participate in the protection of marital sex? I'm going to give you four, and there's many others I could give you, but I'm going to give you four this morning. First, you need to consider the cost of not protecting it. Consider the cost there is a price attached to your choices in life. And often the price tag for this particular sin is expensive and it is irreversible. Sin can be pardoned and forgiven, but the consequences often linger and remain for a lifetime. And there is a price tag of your sexual choices and the price tag bears its price on your soul. For so many of you, you, see you have a downcast spirit because there's a cast, a darkness over your spirit and because of your pornography usage, because of your, your adulterous affair, and it blocks the rays of God's love and presence from you. It doesn't block the, the objectivity and the reality that they're there, but it blocks your experience of them. There is a price tag not just to your spiritual life. There is a price tag to your honor. Go and read Proverbs 6 and 7. and Better yet, go and memorize Proverbs 6 and 7. My dad made me memorize it when I was 13 years old. The ruin of adultery has taken down men and women and families and churches and even whole nations. It has a price tag on you personally. It has a price tag on your family legacy. The pain it can cause your spouse and your children can last a lifetime. Consider the costs. Consider the cost. Listen to this, an open letter that I found. An open letter from a daughter to her father is entitled this, an open letter to my porn watching dad from your daughter. And here's what she said. I want you to know that I love you and I forgive you for what this has done in my life. I also want you to know exactly what your porn use has done in my life. You may think that this affects only you or just you and mom's relationship, but this has had a profound impact on me and on all my siblings as well. I found your porn on the computer somewhere around the age of 12 or so, just when I was starting to become a young woman. Because of pornography, I was aware that mom was not the only woman you were looking at, I became acutely aware of your wandering eye when we were out and about. This taught me that all men have a wandering eye and that they can't be trusted. I learned to distrust and even dislike men for the way they perceived women in this way. I wondered more and more if I could ever find a man who would accept me, accept me, and love me, not just a pretty face. When I had friends over, I wondered how you perceived them. Did you see them as my friends or did you see them as a pretty face in one of your fantasies? And your porn watching has even affected my relationship with my husband years later. We still have struggles with intimacy because of the deep-rooted distrust in my heart for men. If I could tell you one thing, it would be this. Porn didn't affect your, just affect your life. It affected everyone around you in ways I don't think you can ever realize. I do pray that you're past this and that the many men who struggle with this will have their eyes opened. Consider the cost, consider the cost. In my hometown, the spiritual life of my city could actually be traced to one particular church called Tabernacle. In the early part of the 90s, there was a great revival in our community, and it was based around this church in which thousands and thousands and thousands of people gathered in this church, and there was great unity and fellowship amongst the believers from various churches, but it was all shattered when the pastor of that church when it was found out that he had an affair with many women in the church. And what I experienced for the next five to six years of my life, that happened while I was early in high school, is the kids in the youth group of that church wandered from church to church, from religion to religion, wondering what in the world happened. The collateral damage of that man's sins rippled effect throughout all the churches in our community. Consider the cost. Second, joining with God, flee temptation, flee temptation. Matthew 5, 29 and 30 says this, should be on the screen for you about uh in matthew 5 it says this uh if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell and if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away now before everyone comes back next week looking like pirates with (laughs) hook hands and a patch on your face i think you need to understand what's going on here That what Jesus is saying, he's using graphic hyperbolic language to say this very clearly. This is serious. This is serious. Don't mess with this sin. Run from it. Deal with it. Don't play around with it. There are some predicaments in life in which you don't try to meditate your way out of it. You run. Paul Tripp says this about our need to run in regards to sexual sin. If you're going to live sexually pure in this sexually insane world, then you're going to have to do a lot of running. Run from desires that at times seem too powerful to exist. You're going to have to run from pride that tells you that you're stronger than you really are. You have to run from selfishness that would allow you to use others for your own pleasure. You have to run from things that you would love to participate in but would expose you to things that you cannot handle. You're simply going to have to run from anything, anywhere that is immoral in the eyes of your savior. Are you willing to run? This means this practically that there are some movies that you can't see, there are some books that you should not read, there are some TV shows that you cannot watch, there are restaurants with owls that you cannot patron, there are gyms that you cannot work in out out by yourself, you cannot have a subscription to Sports Illustrated, and there are literally millions upon millions of websites to which you cannot go. Practically speaking, in our technologically saturated world, you need to recognize the power of what you possess in your pockets. And perhaps you might need to put a filter on it or get rid of it entirely. And please, as just a side note, parents, do not give your children phones. Do not put computers and TVs in your children's rooms. You might as well, as one pastor said, put gasoline in your oven. But there are also positive things you can do. Isn't that good news? (laughs) There are positive things you can do to flee and guard against temptation, so you see, sometimes the best defense is a good offense, and so if you're married, you must pursue your spouse. And remember what we're after. We're not just after sexual activity, we're after deep intimacy. But this, So this involves emotionally, spiritually, you must pursue them, physically, you must pursue them, and yes, sexually. One of the ways in which you can guard yourself from sin is to have passionate and frequent... Intimacy with your spouse, and if you are so relationally disconnected in your marriage that one or either of you has no desire for sexual intimacy on a regular basis, then you need to either see a medical doctor or need to get help for your marriage. If you have kids, you're in the early stages of that, and life is super busy, or you have maybe older in life and there's physical limitations from weariness, then you need to put intimacy on the schedule. You say that is totally unromantic. Well, let me ask you this: What could be more unro- more romantic than saying this? I am so committed to you. I care about you so much, and so care about our marriage. I care so much about my faithfulness to you that it is important that we are satisfied sexually with one another. Now, that is romantic. And if that means we have to put it on the calendar, then you do that. Now, just as a warning, just quick, real quick, a warning on how that conversation is probably going to go. It's going to go like this: Husband, I'm wide open Saturday through Sunday, any time of the day, anywhere. <laughs> Wife, I might have some time Tuesday evening. <laughs> but brothers and sisters, please be vigilant about this. Flee, flee away and flee, away from sexual sin, and flee and run towards your spouse. If you are not married, if you're not married in this room, then here's what I would suggest: and you spurn sexually, then maybe you should date. But in order to do that, you might actually have to begin addressing the issues to why you're so doggone scared of it. Why you're so scared of actually allowing a woman to know what you look like and what your past is like and who you are. Why you're so scared of actually putting yourself out there and taking risks in order to pursue somebody else and being known. Paul says, if you burn, get married. So what are you doing about it? Are you running away from sexual immorality and running towards... Places that God has given you running towards marriage. Third, third, third. Prepare for a long fight. Prepare for a long fight, a very long fight. I, I did what every pastor does on this issue. I kind of began my week by looking up statistics of how bad and screwed up we all are on this issue. And here's the shocking thing that I found. You know when people are most the trend is the, the the curve goes for when people are most likely to cheat is actually the older you get, the more likely you are to cheat. In fact, it reaches its high point in your early 70s. What? <laughs> it's why God made the villages, I guess. Uh, um, listen, if you're a young man and you think it's just this issue's just going away, I have bad news for you. It ain't going away. It ain't going away. And if you think, if you think one week of shock and all combat will win this war, you're bound for deep and desperate disappointments. If you're looking for a quick fix, an easy answer, a one-and-done solution, then you'll never really understand the nature of the fight. Here's what David Pallison says about this. He says, "We love gazelle testimonies. We love the stories of graceful leaps of growth. They make for a great testimony to God's wonder-working power, and we like steady and predictable. It seems to vindicate our efforts at making the Christian-like work in a business-like manner, but in fact, there is no formula, there is no secret, no technique, no program, and no truth that guarantees the speed, distance, or time frame. On the day you die, you'll still be somewhere in the middle, but hopefully further along. When we lengthen the battle, we realize that our business is the direction. Here's what I would say is this. I say this in large part because my great fear for so many of you is this is that you are fighting and you're fighting hard to defeat sexual sin in your own heart and in your own life. And yet, because of various disappointments and failures, that you're just gonna to choose to give up. Understand the nature of the fight is lifelong, and the nature of the fight is the direction. And so let me give you a word of a word of encouragement. The day of completion is coming. It won't just be the day in which death and sorrow and suffering is gone. Praise be to Jesus. There will be a day when he comes in, as he says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at completion. There will be a day when he will come and he will make all things new. He will wipe away the tears. He will take away every reason for sorrow, crying, and pain. And these things will not, go come until God comes and visibly restores all things. Someday, not today, but someday all things will be made new, including your sexual desires. So have that one day in view as you fight. The hope that God is giving you in that. Fourthly and finally, fourthly and finally in participating in protecting your sexuality and sex for marriage is this, you gotta come home. You gotta come home. I'm gonna ask this question a couple times. What would make an adulterous, cheating spouse come home? See, we were made for passionate intimacy with God. It's where we begin this discussion, Right? Marital intimacy is a reflection of the intimacy we're to have with God. He has to be the lover who will never leave you or forsake you. You were made for intimacy with God. That's what we had in the garden. But what did we do? We divorced God. See, the story of our relationship with God is most profoundly told in the story of Hosea and Gomer. God commands Hosea, God commands Hosea to go take a prostitute as his wife, to care for her, to show her love and affection. For this is what God did for Israel. But just as God's love was not enough for Israel so Hosea's love was not enough for Gomer Hosea 2: 5 says this for their mother has played the whore and she who conceived them has actually has acted shamefully for she said I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water my wool and my flax my oil and my drink and there's something profound in the simplicity of what she was after there isn't it Think about this list. These are not extravagant things. These are actually daily necessities. These are all good things, in fact. The problem is not the good thing. The problem is not that you have sexual desire and that you have sexual longings and that you long for connection and intimacy. The problem is that when these two things become ultimate and spiritual adultery is the yearning for anything above and beyond the Lord your God. That's thus the first commandment. Something else besides the Lord has captured the primary affection of Gomer's heart and has captured the affection of your heart. Hosea makes this case in various vivid ways in following texts. In Hosea 4 12 through 13, he says this God says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. You see that? They long for a piece of wood. Why? Because they have a spirit of whoredom in them. And they have left their god to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Again, nothing wrong with trees, Right? Nothing wrong with trees, but when that is what is good becomes ultimate, then it is a rival lover to your true lover. Hosea thirteen two. and now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver, and all of them works of craftsmen. It is said, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. This is a deliberate image, men kissing statues of calves. Why? Because the calves were the fertility god to Baal. They wanted Baal to give them a good crop. That was their god. That was their idol. That was their lover. These are not a people who have actually ultimately renounced God. They are still very religious. It's just that God is not God to them. That their spouse is not their spouse to them. They wanted Baal to give them something else. They wanted something else to be their functional gods. Hosea, this is the issue. Hosea was there, but Gomer felt like she needed more than Hosea. And for so many, for the people of Israel, for you of me, God has been there and he has been there faithfully. And yet in our spiritual adultery, we have been looking for something else. We ran away to other lovers. We have sought to be satisfied in others. And so we try and satisfy ourselves apart from God's. And perhaps there is no place in which we seek to satisfy our souls more than in sex because it is the closest thing. It mimics intimacy with God most profoundly. G.K. Chesterton said this, When a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he is looking for God's. And when a man dials up pornography on his phone, he is searching for God. Will that porn satisfy his soul? Absolutely not. Will the extramarital affair satisfy your soul? It won't. But neither will a perfect marriage do that either. There is no man, woman, or child that will satisfy you. Any substitute for God will never satisfy us. So how do adulterers come home? It says this in chapter 2 of Hosea, verse 13. God says, I will punish her for the feast days of the veils when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. She forgot God and we have forgotten God. And notice how verse 13 begins, therefore, verse 14, therefore, and you would expect that logically what God says is, therefore, I turned my back on her. Therefore, I will forget her, but that's not what it says. What's God say in verse 14? Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. You know what the wilderness is? It is the place of suffering. It is the place of exposure. It is the place of confession. It is the place of being brought bare. It is where you know and your spouse knows and perhaps other people know that there has been this wickedness, this adultery in your life. And perhaps for some of you, you're in the wilderness this morning. But understand this, that God has brought you into a place of suffering so that you might hear his wooing and alluring voice, so that you might hear his voice of love again, as he says in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That word know is so powerful. It's the same word that God talks about in Genesis chapter 2, about Adam knowing his wife. God says, I will give you what you would not and could not give to me. This is the Lord telling you this morning: you may and actually will forget me, but I will never forget you. And here's the gospel in this. He proved it, didn't he? From heaven he came. And solder. He seeks and his wandering, wayward bride. The metal molded into calves would be hammered into spikes. The trees that they bowed down to would be fashioned into cross beams. The gospel is this on the cross, Jesus ransomed us back to himself and re betrothed us to himself, even us, the very ones who betrayed him. As if to say, I will never let you go. Jesus said, I will become completely vulnerable, I will become open. Remember the, the aspects of intimacy. I will become completely open and vulnerable. I will become killable, so that I might accept you, and so that you might unsee and experience my faithfulness. From heaven he came and sought her, to be his holy bride. With his own love, his own blood, he bought her, to be his bride. So I ask one more time: How do adulterers come home? Adulterers come home when they finally come to understand that there is a love that gives itself more openly. There is a love that provides a greater account of acceptance, and there is a love that is more faithful even in the face of our unfaithfulness. There is a God who loves you, not the Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat you, not the church you, but the real you. This is the intimacy we crave, and here is what this has to do with protecting you and healing you from your sexual morality. When you are the beloved of God, when that satisfies your soul, then sex no longer has to become the quest for satisfaction of something you don't have. But instead, sex can merely be what it was called to be, the expression of love and faithfulness and acceptance that you already possess from God. Only God can give you the most blissful sex, the most ecstatic, self-forgetting climax is but an echo to the connection that you can have with himself, a sustained joy face-to-face. You are made to this for this intimacy, a union with God, with the very face of God. Let's pray. Oh God, like the old song now says, or the song that is now old to me, at least. Oh Lord, we have um, we have played the whore. We have run down the aisle to lovers so less wild. Man, what a wild God we serve! God who would lead heaven, leave heaven itself, to enter into the desert of this world. To come show us the acceptance he gives. To come reveal to us the extent that his faithfulness will go. Oh gracious God, I pray that our hearts would marinate on that. That the good news of Jesus Christ would be the thing that allures us so deeply. That all other lovers, all other things we would say, that has its place. But my soul is satisfied here. Oh, gracious God, I pray that we would join you in protecting this great gift that you've given us. But Lord, even as we enjoy the gift, I pray that we would enjoy even more the intimacy of the one who has given it to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.